phone is ringing? Mine, mine. Whose phone is ringing? Shut up and sit down. Hey, well, my name is Brett Michael Innes. Uh, I'm a writer, director, and producer. Uh, you might know me from my work. Uh, I did a film called Sync, which won the SAFTA in 2017 for Best Screenplay and Feature. And I've recently done the new adaptation of the Dalian Matia book, Fila Sekunt, which also won the SAFTA this year for Best Feature and Best Screenplay. Uh, that's me. Cool. Cool. like it. So, so why, so why what, what particularly drew you to... to the Afrikaans sort of market. Uh, maybe just start there because it seems like everything that you do is is sort of in that market. Yeah, I mean, I, I've really, as as an English-speaking uh, South African of Scottish and Lebanese descent, I, I am not Afrikaans, but I did it at school like I think so many people um, did. And it's just at the time I was starting to enter the film industry or trying to enter it, that it was at that space when Afrikaans films were really being supported by the market so it was quite a strategic thing for me to say, well, English South African films, as much as it's my first language and I am now going to be creating films in that space, um, there just wasn't a market for that. So my first uh, film, Sync, was originally meant to be an English couple, but changed it because the financing could come from CakeNet, who've been incredible supporters of my work. And it, it made sense on a creative level as well. So. Um, the choice to push into the Afrikaans industry was because they were the only ones not only making films, but also had audiences that were supporting them. And were they, and were they looking, looking for films in that space? Do they, I mean, how does it work? Do they sort of put a hook out to try and find people that are writing material, um, looking for a drama sort of with, within, you know, to target a certain age group or a certain demographic in the Afrikaans market, yeah. is that how it works? So that, that works a lot more in the TV space. They'll put out commissioning briefs and you will answer those briefs with um, say something you've been working on already or come up with something that suits it. When it comes to independent film, um, the way they engage with us was much more in a, something called a pre-sale where traditionally a film will be made and then Mnet or a broadcast will purchase it. Um, they liked the script, which was already in place. Um, they saw potential in myself as a filmmaker. So they actually put money up front uh, to help make it happen. That's actually how we finance the film, along with the tax rebate that's available to all South African productions through the Department of Trade and Industry. Okay. So it really was a thing where um, I'd been working for a couple of years on just getting different scripts off the ground. Some didn't make it. This one just seemed to be one that resonated with the team at CakeNet and um, just kind of relentlessly knocking on doors saying, would you like to take a look at this? Would you like to take a look at this? And um, they did and it worked out pretty well for me there. But yeah, there was no, I think people kind of leave film school and they're looking for job applications online or where like I've never, I've had in my career one, two, uh, it's happened twice where people have approached me with, um, a script saying we'd like to ask you to to do this and then you engage with it in a different way yeah. but I'd say the majority of people's experience is there's no one out there offering you stuff so you have to kind of go out there and figure out how to make it or align yourself with people who do all right so so it's very much like a hustling market you've got to come up with a concept and actually you can't really just I'm, I'm not saying this is how it is I'm actually asking you you can't just pitch a concept right you've actually got to you've actually got to write 
what do they call it? You've got to write a script for a, for a season or what is it? Or for, for an episode or the teaser episode? What do they call that? Uh, a pilot, yeah. I mean, so television and, and film are two very different beasts and they are starting to merge as cinema, which has been on a decline for years, is starting to rely a lot more heavily on broadcasters or streamers to actually get their, their projects made. Yeah. So you will do... Often, if, you ha if people know your work, um, to start a conversation, you'll have a one-pager, which has like a bit of concept art to give a flavor. It literally um, summarizes your film or, and your series into a couple of paragraphs because if you can't actually tell people what your movie or series is about yeah. in a one line, you probably don't know what your film is yet. Um, so that's if you have a bit of an established background. Uh, you always write your first film or screenplay or series for free. It's doing it yourself to get yourself in the door. Um, I think one of the hardest things is actually getting to direct uh, for the first time because every other department, as a screenwriter, it's my own time. I sit with my laptop, I can make it happen. It's relatively inexpensive in terms of production. Every other department from cinematography, you can assist uh, other cinematographers and then start working with cameras and build up a showreel. But for directing, there rarely is a space where you can show what you've done unless you've gone and either financed a short film or I think Quentin Tarantino said every time you're directing a new film, you're actually always trying to prove yourself or prove to others that what you want to do, you can do because it's generally bigger than what you've just come from. Wow. So yeah. Whereas with a script writer, I can literally provide people the script and they're like, okay, he can write. And then yeah. the uh, conversation can progress. Okay. I mean, to me, it's, to me, it seems like an all-in industry. You know what I mean? You're either in this 400% or you, you're not in it. You know, you don't dabble. You know, because I, mm. I mean, I assume that you had to brush up on your Afrikaans skills a lot and actually learn the skill of talking Afrikaans as, a, as an English-speaking uh, Lebanese boy or pot Lebanese, you know what I mean? So writing something in Afrikaans, you've got to write it from a first language point of view, right? And so you've literally got to live that script or how did you go about it so uh, my stuff and generally i mean this is the beauty with i think uh, most afrikaans first language people is they are fluent in english in a much better way than my afrikaans is oh, so um, i will get someone who's actually i'll write all the dialogue in english um with philosophy i had a book which actually had the dialogue already in afrikaans right. for me but i will get a translator just to uh, make sure that the um, dialogue is in Afrikaans, but the actual descriptions in the script will always be in English because as much as you are working on a film in this language, you will have crew who are English, Kosa, Sutu, Zulu, um, just who don't necessarily speak first language Afrikaans. Yeah. So if I wrote um, the entire script in Afrikaans, it would limit me to only being able to work with uh, first language speakers. And yeah. I, I, would, I prefer having a bit of a mix on, on my sets. Okay. Um, but in terms of just the approach to filmmaking, it really is an all-in thing. You, there's much better ways to make money if getting rich is your desire. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, for me, it's it it happened relatively quickly. But it took about four years of from leaving full-time employment to actually um, get into a place where a film was uh, ready to be financed. It took four years of not being paid to write the script, not being paid for every door that you knock on. Um, and just really, it happened pretty quick for me, but it was still super hard. I mean, I, I just don't know. I mean, if you're a single mother trying to make things happen, if you've got, uh, you know, 
certain things against you from a structural level that goes well beyond your own personal work ethic. I really don't know how you actually pursue this thing because it demands hours of you and sacrifice that um, not many people are afforded to, uh, to have. So, I mean, whenever I hear someone talking about how they got there just with hard work, that's absolute bullshit. You needed um, hard work to be there, but there's so many other elements at play which enable you to actually uh, walk through the door and make it happen. And especially with Hollywood, I mean, that is even more so um, an industry which is based on family. So um, both in front and behind the camera, the access to get into that is generally your father was an exec at that place or your grandfather was that. Right. Okay. Um, you live in L.A. Um, so then you don't have to travel there or figure out that system yourself. Yeah. South Africa, I think, is a lot easier to get your first uh, film off the ground. But yeah, there's so many obstacles. I mean, as if it wasn't hard enough, we now have COVID in the mix to pretty much stop everything from happening. But um, cinema decline, uh, changes in uh, tastes from audiences. There's films that 10 years ago are really successful, but would never even be made uh, if they were uh, pitched now just because the tastes of viewers have changed. Yeah. So Brett, why do you do it then? I love storytelling. So to me, uh, film is an extension of storytelling. I've, and I, to be honest, I question often, why do I do it? Because it does um, cause a lot of pain. I mean, just the, the process of making film is incredibly rewarding and beautiful, but the journey of making it um, is actually one that is quite damaging on a psychological level mm. um, from the actual making of it. But then now with the, the way we are connected online, um, it's really tough when your film does go out and people feel the need to tag you in uh, a comment saying this was a piece of shit or you're terrible, you shouldn't do anything. And I'm, I'm very sensitive to that specifically with actors because they take the majority of the brunt for that. I mean, we pretty much expose our souls in this process and it does sound very melodramatic, but uh, we're creative, so we, we do that. But yeah, we now have a world that really, if you do something they don't like, they will take you to the cleaners. I mean, I, the director of Cats, which has been, <laughs> I haven't watched it and I understand why he's, uh, everyone's gone off at him. But just on a human level, I don't know how you deal with that kind of criticism uh, from peers, from critics, and then just from the general public. Yeah. So you have to really love what you're trying to do and believe in it uh, to even... Uh, you know, take those first steps. And then I don't think it's the most talented who succeed. And I don't think it's those who work the hardest. It's literally those who are the most patient, those who can afford to wait for years. I mean, I have scripts I've written seven years ago, which are still chugging along. And um, the great perspective I have is Martin Scorsese with silence. It took him 16 years to get that off the ground. That's it. And he had, the name of Martin Scorsese behind him and he still couldn't get that off the ground. So I mean, that is why I don't work on just one project at a time. Um, but yeah, you really, I think you get put through a, quite a ringer as you try to engage with this. And I mean, it's such a huge part of any part of the creative space is rejection. A lot of our self validation is how others view our work. So if you're a painter, how people view how your painting was done, a musician, how they um, like your music. So you have to have this um, tenacity of self-belief that in many ways contradicts what you get told all the time. And that takes on a very interesting uh, 
dynamic shift when you right. actually get chosen to do this because you're so used to no's and rejections that when somebody actually says, yes, let's do this, then your self-doubt starts kicking in <laughs> and you're like, okay, can I actually do this? And every filmmaker I know goes through like just that, that moment of, of doubt, like, wow, I've lied to people. I, it's called imposter syndrome. Um, yeah. And yeah, you really, now millions are on the line because you're making a movie and can you actually pull this off? Yeah. So, so it's a double war there. So at the same time as you're trying to get this and pull this off, you, you're constantly fighting yourself. And you're totally. constantly trying to reassure yourself that somebody's believing in you to do this. You know. Big time. And I think what makes it even harder is, so if I was only a producer, which is very much the business side of things, I can come into this hardcore and I have that side of my personality where I, I'm headed to negotiate. You're on the defensive. But as a writer, as if you're an actor, as a director, our skill set is our sensitivity. Um, that is how we empathize with characters. That's how we make beauty, beautiful art. Right. And in order to keep that part sharp, it leaves us very vulnerable to the rejection side of stuff. Because if I only embrace that hardcore producing side, I can guarantee you I would not be able to find the layers of nuance that are needed to bring a story to life, to give a character voice. Um, and that's, yeah, the, the idea that, um, and that's why you'll see some of the best actors whose performances we like, how did they go there? They have that side, but then on the other side, this uh, either depression or this the effect of uh, the journey to get there damages the very soft parts of the of our psyche, and that tension between holding those two in place is, is quite a juggle. I think anyone in my industry needs to be in therapy. Like it's just it's not a doctor fixing a sick patient. I see it more as a physiotherapist or a personal trainer making sure that your mind and your emotion is so fits that you can actually do this marathon that's in front of you. That's incredible. So do, but do actors that want to get into the industry or, or, or producers and whatever that want to get in, do they understand this? Do they, you know, know. They, <laughs> they don't. I mean, if they say, is it true that they say that in Hollywood, uh, every waiter is a wannabe actor, somebody that's just waiting for the perfect script or has gone for, you know, has gone and just can't nail a role. I mean, do they yeah. understand the, the, the hardships? I don't think so. It's not something that's ever really spoken about candidly. Um, I think we're so, anyone who is making it is, uh, tends to want to project um, an image of, I had a plan and this is how it, it played out, you know, putting your best foot forward. But the reality is I think we all stumble into this and we learn and learn ways um, as it goes along. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I just look at casting my films is that it often comes, it doesn't come down to whether the person's good enough or not. It often comes down to that. There are 30 people playing exactly the same skill. Yeah. And now I need to choose, okay, that person's this much taller or that person's a little bit um, thicker and that suits the character a bit more. Like those are the things that make the decisions. It's got nothing to do with whether the person was a good actor or not. It really? literally comes down to that. And I, I often think an act, actors especially could do themselves a great service by um, just sitting in as a reader during a casting because then they'll see 30 actors come through who do exactly the same thing and how when the director and casting director are making decisions, they're looking at those points. And the same for, for me when it comes to when I send scripts off to agents or to um, funding bodies. I, I've been on the other side of that now where I've 
had the privilege of um, recommending or not recommending projects to funding bodies. And I get given 50 projects in a slate and now I've got to make sure five get selected. What do I look for? And it gave me a great perspective on actually, it doesn't come down to the things I think it comes down to. It mm -hmm. comes down to what information am I putting up front? How am I making their job as easy as possible? Um, so it often requires you to actually get out of your head and see how the rest of the ecosystem of film works right. as opposed to just your own part. Yeah. Cheaper. So, in, so when you get to your level, you say that it could take so long to get to the place where somebody's investing in your movie or you, you or in your film and you, what do you, so obviously the money is that good. If you get, if you get the opportunity to make a film, right? That, you know, or is it that good so that you don't have to, so that you've got, you don't, you don't need to make another one back to back. You know, you can spend time writing between, and it all depends, I guess, where you are and, and what kind of movie, right? It, yeah, it really depends on also your personal circumstances. Are you, like I said, like a single mom needing to pay for school fees and get something going? The, the needs that you have might not make this a viable option. I can tell you that um, I do need to work um, back to back to make my finances meet. I mean, I will then know, you know, I, I won't try and pretend that I'm poor in any way. Um, definitely not. But in terms of people thinking that once you've made a couple of films, you're now rolling in cash. Um, yeah, it really doesn't work out that well. It probably would have been better to like work in a call center if I look at how it adds up. <laughs> probably that bad. <laughs> no, I mean, when you, when you put the hours that go into it, that's why I say you don't make this, this call for finance. And I'm just, the way my life has been set up, I haven't been forced to do jobs that um, I haven't wanted to. But I've had to take on teaching gigs on the side or do little videos, um, you know, corporate kind of things between uh, bigger feature films just yeah. to make uh, ends meet there. So um, it definitely isn't a thing, at least in South Africa, that when you make a movie, um, like I, there was, I think if you're in commercials, it's, it's, uh, it is very different because the, the budgets that they spend on a 30 second commercial, I could make two feature films with. Um, but uh, yeah, you, you don't do this thing for money. Um, there's way smarter ways to make money. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So, I mean, it is definitely, it is definitely a creative process and you're in it for, for, you know, for the creative box to be ticked yeah. in, in yourself. But, yeah. but explain to me, explain to me what, you know, you know, what, what does it for you? Is it the fact that you can watch that movie after you've done it and you feel good about it and other people, mm -hmm. one or two other people like your movie and they said, Hey, Brett, good job. And they're not friends of yours and they're not just doing it to pat you on the back. Or is it the awards? Is it actually walking up onto the stage and receiving an award and doing a speech? What? Or is it getting paid? You know, what is it? Is it all of the above? Or what does it for you? So for me personally, and I only was able to answer that once my first movie was made because they are navigating and by made being like once it had screened and I'd done festivals, I, we'd won awards. Um, the Beyond the actual process of creating, I love that part of it. Like I know filmmakers who hate being on set. They hate working with actors or like they just, that's not enjoyable to them. I love that. I love getting together with a group of people and seeing it come to life, being surprised when uh, something you didn't plan happens and ends up on screen. But the most transcendent moment for me 
is that first time sitting in a crowded cinema and feeling a collective of people respond to something that was a thought in your head. Like if ever I've had like an insight into what creation can be, this idea that a word or a thought suddenly becomes tangible and becomes work for people. It becomes a creative expression. And then when in my head, I wanted people to cry at a certain point, and then you feel 300 people doing that emotion. It is a high that I cannot uh, you know, describe any better than this. It really transcends like awards are so late. It comes down to, you know, who the jury is that's choosing the awards. And it's really awesome when you get them. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't mean something because it really right, does. Of course. It also adds stock value. And that's what I lean on it for more is that when I had uh, got my first shaft, it immediately started conversations with people who I couldn't get in the room with uh, before that. So there's a very tangible financial, when I say economic um, value to awards, but I don't do it for those. Um, festivals are great because you get to travel like with Felix Akunt, uh, in the space of a week, I attended, uh, screenings for the film in, uh, Estonia, Egypt, and India, three vastly different audiences. And to see this Afrikaans film hit them all that in completely different ways was wow. just mind blowing. Estonia, they're much more reserved, but I look back and because of the light from the screen, I can see the tears being wiped from their face. And it's all subtitled, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So you've got Afrikaans language into English subtitle into Estonian subtitle in the same with Arabic. It's bizarre. And then Egypt, like the screening, like people come rushing up afterwards. They want to show me the tears that are on their face. They're like, I want you to see what this has done. And then in India, and I've had the privilege of having both my film screen at a really good festival there. Um, they, I've never seen this in any audience anywhere else. When a character does something that morally they approve of, they just start applauding. And for both my films, it happened in moments that are very like quiet and reserved. So there's, you don't get a laugh or any kind of response from other audiences. And all of a sudden this whole cinema starts applauding. And I, I didn't know what was going on, but like those moments are incredibly uh, special. But then it's, so comedies don't tend to go to festivals. So it's not to see that if you make a comedy that does well on Netflix, but doesn't go to festivals, doesn't mean it's a failure. It's just knowing where your film uh, fits in there. Wow. And yeah, cash wise, um, it, it doesn't make a ton of money. I mean, so that's really not a crazy motivator there. That must be, as a creator, that must, because this is a creative blog, or a creative interview, but as a creator, that must be, I wouldn't say the ultimate, but all creators strive to communicate some kind of emotion, right? So you would paint okay. something and to the painter, there is a certain emotion that you want to portray, but you never know. You yeah. never know that if people are watching it would perceive that. Or an ad campaign, let's talk about, let's talk about advertising, mm. an ad campaign, you never really know. You get the number, yeah. you never really know if it hits the mark. Yeah. For you, it's like your creative vehicle that you've created is taking people on this emotional roller coaster, and you can kind of mm. cue the tears. Like you're almost going like they're going to cry in five, four, three, and it happens. You know that for you as a creator must feel amazing. Yeah, and it is. It, there's a real sense of accomplishment when, from mind to page to camera to edit suite to screen, what was intended results in what you have up there, and. It's not, it doesn't happen with every scene and sometimes the film surprises you. It kind of takes on a life of its own and not in like a, 
a weird way, but you start to know the project and the characters so well that it starts telling you how it wants to be told. Yeah. And there's a very cool shift when that happens because then you're not pandering to your, to my own ego or my own desire because I start to realize that no, this film is setting its style and its tone as much as I established it. Yeah. It takes on a life of its own as other people um, become involved in it. And oh, yeah. I think if you're obedient to that or you don't try to resist it, then something really, really special happens. But I know for me, and I've done it with, um, with every film and I hope I will do it with, with every film is I think the most truthful reaction you as a filmmaker can ever have to your film is in an audience that doesn't know that you're there. And I buy a ticket on opening weekend and I sit in the back of um, the cinema. No one knows the director of the film is there. And I listen and feel the audience respond. Because at a premiere or at a festival, they know you're there. So they either, like, it's people that want to work with you or if it's can and they hate your film, they slap the chairs and start booing. Like, they're a hardcore. They're a hardcore audience. Like, if you get a standing ovation, South Africa, we give standing ovations to anything. It actually reduces the value for it. In Cannes, if you get a standing ovation, it means something because yeah. if they don't like it, they will boo. And I, I've, I haven't been in a screening where this happens, but the folding chairs are really loud when they fold up. So if they want to give a message to the filmmakers, they stand up and they slam the, the folding chair and it makes this... Yeah, I can. So yeah, I mean that's 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 the value of excellence. That when you really when you've been judged about what you've done, and you do it well, then it means something when you that's get approval phenomenal. like that. That's phenomenal. <laughs> oh, cool. So so as somebody who's made multiple uh, multiple movies and multiple films, do you kind of have the sort of favorite child syndrome, or is there, or that, do you see them all? As, as, you know, equal pieces of art that you've done? Equal pieces of art, though I have preference to my first one just because of what it meant as the first one. But I also feel that it was because the second one was also an adaptation, so there were certain choices I couldn't necessarily... You have to honour the source material. Yeah. So I was serving the story and not necessarily my own voice, even though my fingerprint is all over it. Whereas the first one was 100%, um, you know, original from me. So I feel it is a lot more in line with um, my style um, than the second one. Though with the second one, I took risks that I would never have done with the first. Yeah, yeah. I trusted the process more. Um, it's bigger in scope. We really tried some incredible stuff uh, with it for the budget that we had. And um, so I love them differently for different reasons. But I'd cool. say the first one is up there. From from uh, from your point of view, what has Netflix actually done for the industry, good or bad? It's combination. Like cinema is declining. Um, it's been on the down for a long, long time. Um, what I, I just look at us in South Africa is that if you remember when we were growing up, you'd you'd watch say an awards show and then okay that film won and six months later it only hit South Africa and that was because when we were still on film, we were waiting for the US to finish watching the movies on film and the film would be shipped to South Africa and then it would play here. So we had that gap. Then television happened, but we had apartheid sanctions and censorship. So firstly, the only content we got was approved by them. And then when we transitioned after 94, we tended to only have US kind of fair, very, and maybe UK. We weren't exposed to other voices. Right. And what I love about the streamers um, 
across the board is that I can turn on my computer and my friend from Mexico's film is the suggested film of the week here in South Africa. Uh Um, I can see what Korean filmmakers are doing, Brazilian, like every culture has its own, um, own voice. And um, I love the fact that I can, I can see these stories and learn from them because it informs as much as you go to film school to learn to be a filmmaker, the movies you've been watching since childhood inform the visual language and your, your inclinations. So mine, it took a while to now expose myself to all these other things. I I cannot wait to see what filmmakers who were raised with Netflix are going to be creating because they have everything available to them in terms of world cinema. And they're going to have so much more eloquent than any of the filmmakers of my generation and older. So you've got to look at it from a positive, right? As a filmmaker, you've got to look at Netflix from a positive, from a positive lens. And, and it's positive, it's, but then it's also like there's the side where as a business they're monopolizing, but then there's others that come, come into play as well. I, I think they're, they're doing more good than um, yeah, the negative side. It just means we have to adapt how we um, tell stories because at the end of the day, it's a platform. So when you see Netflix movies, is that, then, is that then sourced and funded by Netflix? So they're sort of creating their own content or how does that work? Combination. So you'll get acquisitions where a film is finished and they will purchase it. And depending on the negotiating from the filmmakers, it can either just be a film that's on Netflix or they put the logo on in front um, as a kind of hybrid original yeah. uh, acquisition. But then they are doing originals. So the first one in the first Africa original series was Queen Sona. And then uh, Blood and Water, which was number one in the U.S. and a number of, number of other territories outside of South Africa yeah. um, on the week of its release. And that was 100% original from concept to screen. Really? So, yeah. so, so what's next for you? Are you looking international? Are you trying to do some international stuff? Or Combination. So there's, there's a number of scripts which are done. Um, yet again, it takes forever to get things off the ground, but uh, UK co-production, two Dutch co-productions, one Canadian co-production, and then um, a bunch of local ones. Cool. My, my goal is to, I want to lean more into, so where I've done two dramas, I want to lean a lot more into genre films, thriller, horror, um, sci-fi, as well as drama. So that's the space that I'm, I'm starting to play in. And cool. um, yeah, I kind of got one that is, pretty much finance ready to go, but COVID has stopped all production. So we have to wait until based where? Um, we, based here in South Africa. Right. So you'll shoot it locally, but is it, would yeah. it be released into an international market or is it a new South African, South African movie? This one will be a South African one with the potential for television sales. Um, it comes down to language people as much as there's not a warming up to subtitles, it does help to be English majority language. And this one does have that. Yeah. Um, drama doesn't travel as well. So this is also another reason um, for me to want to embrace uh, genre films. Um, it seems like uh, that tends to be where people are interested in um, engaging and watching as audiences. So I also think that I, I generally as a artist love, um, polarizing opinions and dialogues and characters and situations um, and drama is one way to deal with it, but genre allows you to do it in a way that um, you can ex- so in the way that get out explored race relations. I think yeah. it reached more people than say um, when they see us, which is a true life drama. Like there's a 
not necessarily a disconnect, but people don't want to see, I think, something that's too close to home on screen. Right. Whereas if it is this heightened reality, um, they're willing to en engage with that, but then you're able to slip um, truths or questions around um, very real topics into that. So that's kind yeah. of where I'm wanting to lean. Okay. Film a lot of it in South Africa. We've got great crews. We've got cheap locations and the dollar goes very far here. And the Department of Trade and Industry is one of the main reasons we actually have a film industry because of the tax rebate that they give us. Crazy. Is that, is that yeah. one? <clears throat> so then also, as you say, price, you know, a lot of international stuff is shot locally as well. You know, shot, you know say in, in South Africa, is that because of the, is that because of price? Is that what you say? Yeah. So, I mean, we, um, I'll just list off some names for you. Kissing Booth, which is on Netflix one and two were both shot in Cape Town, faking California. Um, quite a few episodes of black mirror, was shot here in Cape Town, um, but set in like US kind of spaces. Escape Room by Sony, also set in the US, but filmed entirely in Cape Town. We have a very, the north of the country has a great aesthetic that looks like um, Texas um, in terms of the bushveld, very similar, but then the coast has, um, especially the west coast, quite similar to the west coast of the US, so quite easy to make that happen. And then we've got world-class studios there. Um, so yeah. Black Sails, the, the series for stars is, that's whenever you're in Cape Town, you see that big ship um, by the yeah, studio yeah, that yeah. you drive past. That's still that right, right. literally built, and that uh, water tank was built for that series to take place, yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. So we've definitely, we've got a lot, a lot in our favor. I think everyone, once you're trying to get into the film industry or you've made something like, are you going to Hollywood? I mean, I've, I've gone over and done my time there and I definitely want to work with them. So I'm not pretending I don't, yeah. but the idea that America and Hollywood is how you make it to me, it's like, can you tell your stories? And that's more important. Yeah. And I'll gladly work. And I'm striving actively to work with that industry, yeah. but it's not from a space of South Africa is this, you know, shame. Oh, shame. <laughs> very, very much not, eh? No. We, we're making some incredible cinema. It's, 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 I mean, if you want to look for like a crazy trailer for a film that's just uh, going to drop, it's called Fried Barry. And like Fried we tend Barry. to only Fried Barry. And I, I, I won't even do the synopsis justice. But, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't think it'll be the kind of film. Actually, it's just going viral now. They showed the trailer to Carol Baskin from Tiger King, <laughs> and she's she did a video of herself reacting to it. Oh, really? So the fact that a genre film about a guy, I think, having a heroin, like, um, downward spiral, ends up That's there. Fair. and Yeah. But we kind of, like, we... People think African cinema is one thing and that's a whole big conversation because yeah. it, the world seems to define South African cinema by, by a very small period of our history, the apartheid and the struggle space, and then around race. So the fact that filmmakers, because our audiences don't watch those, that content anymore, we really have fatigue around struggle stories or things that are from that period right. um, because yeah, it's just no one buys tickets for that. So, and that's how you tell it. People may be like, Oh wow, it's great. This film's coming out, but if they're not buying a ticket or mm. watching it entirely on the streamers, then there's no audience. Yeah. We do watch films like, like a district nine, which has South African, I mean, was internationally financed, but we tend to gravitate towards these, these kind of films, which, um, we, the world is starting to catch up with now that actually we can tell stories outside of that very thin uh, sliver of what they define our stories to be.
Right. So well, then what makes, so before we close up, what makes, what makes a successful movie? Obviously, if you look at the landscape of what's happening in the world, you know, people's moods change in terms of what they want to watch. So is it very much a timing thing? For success, you could have a financially successful film, which means nothing to the culture. And that's fine if you set out to produce a film to make money. Um, if you're trying to make a film that resonates um, uh, with people on an audience level or um, becomes this cultural moment that um, starts a dialogue around topics that people haven't necessarily thought about, then it does come down to how do people... So if, if you're making a film about a certain people group, if they don't watch it and actually say that you've represented them poorly, I would say you failed as a filmmaker, um, especially if you are from outside of that group. Yeah. If, however, they embrace it and it doesn't make any money, but this film becomes like something that um, you know starts a, a dialogue, then I'd say it was an incredibly successful one, even though the money hasn't necessarily come to the table there. Yeah, yeah. Cool. It's quite interesting that you say. Um, <laughs> South African actors, in terms of in terms of class, in ten, on the international stage, good. Some great, we just great talent locally. We do, and they're starting to um, because we have a big service industry for the bigger features. They will often be supporting actors on uh, bigger Hollywood productions. So you have. Um, James Gracie, who's known here as James Alexander, he's the lead in Trackers, but he's often um, like the go-to guy that will be in, he's opposite Keanu Reeves in a film called Siberia, Daniel Radcliffe in another one. Um, that's kind of how they start to, I think, move from just being local performers, which he was, to starting to do more um, international stuff. And then um, I'm really hoping, and it looks like his career is progressing to that level. Some people are super lucky where they will have done one small little local thing and the right casting agent or director needs that person for their project. And suddenly it's like Lupita Nyong'o from uh, 12 Years a Slave. Mm. Um, she didn't have a huge track record yet. Her first um, kind of big film role, which was a supporting role, yeah. wins her the Oscar and defines her career. We love those stories. That is the 0.000% or 0.1%. But um, yeah, I think we've got the, the, the tough thing for our actors is there's just not a lot of time to practice. Right. So they've got to put in their 10,000 hours to become experts, but they also got to put food on the table exactly. and it just also doesn't pay enough. So a lot will vacillate between being say a yoga instructor or a teacher. And then when they get a good role, then they, then move on to that. Fantastic. And that's like, I truly, my recommendation to most, people wanting to work in film or, or television is to have another source of income potentially so that you're not using your art and prostituting your art to earn money because it affects how you create. If you're creating out of desperation, um, you don't create at your best. And yeah. if you're not setting yourself up to create, um, if you have the luxury to, to do that, uh, then I say try and find a way to make sure you have a buffer of financial security because yeah. you are literally going to spend years where there's no income coming in and right. you need to figure out either. I mean, if you're, if you're fortunate to come from a wealthy family and like literally put a business plan together of how your family can support you during that time or find a way if there's one actress, um, a local actress who, she had quite a breakout role um, in her uh, late teens. She still chose to, she could literally, she is one of our top actresses, 
but she can, she chose to study medicine and is a practicing doctor. So now she only chooses work that she wants to do because her income and her main um, career is actually medicine. And it has allowed her to make better uh, choices because she hasn't had to suddenly choose a mediocre production that would actually damage her brand because she needs that money to, to get on the table there. Amazing. So in, so, so in, as, as we close it up, that, that partly sort of answers the question, what would you, what kind of, what kind of uh, uh, tips would you give to somebody that wants to do this? or that's crazy enough to do this or, or, you know, has the passion enough to do it, you know, and, uh, and they would know the hardships, but like, what would you say? I say you need to be strategic and it's not a failure to spend a year or two in another space career wise that you're building up a buffer. Cause we, we really have romanticized this. And I, I say this as someone who has done this, having um, quit full-time employment and threw myself wholeheartedly into I'm going to do this film thing and watching how scary that gets. We've really romanticized the artist that does that, who throws caution to the wind. It's a very privileged narrative. We act as if we have nothing and then we throw caution to the wind and, you know, against all odds where everyone said, no, we suddenly proved them wrong. And I would say rather be strategic figure out a way to get a buffer. And if, if writing's your thing, you can write after hours. The author of uh, The Kite Runner is a doctor as well. And he would wake up at 4 a.m. and write from 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. He wrote The Kite Runner during those hours, got his kids ready to school with his wife and then went, went to work. Like there isn't, it's not cleverer to just throw all yourself, yourself into it. Like be strategic. Yeah. And if you have to take a, if I in like a year's time have to pause and say, actually, I'm going to teach at um, a film school for two years, just so that I have a buffer because beyond the rejection you experience in film, there's the financial stress of like, wow, if I don't get something hap- off the ground, um, I could be in trouble financially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and especially actors. I mean, COVID has forced a lot of our industry to question just what we're doing because it's all good now while we're young, healthy and, you know, medical needs are not a big deal. But what happens when you're 70 and 80 and you haven't got a retirement scheme and you haven't been setting yourself up for that? And generally we're quite an isolated group. So um, jumping from relationship to relationship, not really having a support structure. How are you planning for for that space? And I definitely haven't got it right yet. But um, it's stuff that I, I do feel we all need to ask ourselves. Yeah, it's good advice. Lastly, so it's not saying don't do it; it's saying be strategic. <laughs> well, yeah, well, yeah. <clears throat> just just think about it, and that and the romantic idea of just jumping into it is not yeah. that romantic. It's a it's a it's a, a a slow it's a slow path to starvation, right? <laughs> it's it's so true, and I mean, like, even if you get all that right, like, I literally two. No, it was last week I said to my husband, I was like, I want to quit. This journey is hurting me so much. Like really? the amount of no's I've had on this project. And I've learned to rephrase it better because we, we chatted more about it. I chatted with my therapist just around my language. And me saying I want to quit comes more from a space of the, the person in me is feeling sore and pain from this experience. And the only way I know how to express this is to say, I don't want to do this anymore. And my language, the way I'm changing it now based on that advice is 
instead of saying I want to quit, and even if I do, then that's a great path to take if I do want to, is to rather just say, actually, this thing's fucking hurting me right now. I'm tired and I can't do it anymore. And that's okay. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it really, even literally a week ago, that was my headspace. And I knew I would, wouldn't quit it. But sometimes it, it does help to actually just say, I'm tired and I, I need to take a break from this thing. Of course. of course. And there's no shame in that either. <laughs> no, no. Because and I, I'm saying this with projects that are already financed and lined up. Oh, it's, yeah. it's got nothing to do with making it or anything. It's just that the marathon run is so tiring. And now we have all the added things of lockdown, load shedding. Like oh, what a if, if you think you're going to like create your best work out of the space, it's, <laughs> it's really tough. <laughs> yeah. no, you're sorry. You're, you're mistaken. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Brett. So if you could cast a male and a female with anybody in the world, any actor, actress in the world for one of your movies, who would that be? Who would be the, the two people that you would want to work with? Oh, you know, Viola Davis and Elizabeth Moss are very close, close there for me. I need to think a male actor. I'm trying to think of who I haven't um, seen on screen in a while or who I've really appreciated. I actually can't think of the male side. Um, hmm. I'm lost on that one, but Viola Davis and Elizabeth Moss. Sure. <laughs> I would probably melt a little if I, if I got, to, got to work with them. <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal would actually be a really cool one. I like, I like the way one, he, yeah. Yeah. he thinks and, and, and interviews. You, do, you, yeah. do, you, do you talk to these people's agents and stuff if you're ever looking, or how does it work? Is, it, is that just... Yeah, so I mean, I've been fortunate in that. So some of the projects that I'm casting, um, it's really cool when you're getting no's from this kind of level and that's how I've chosen to accept the rejections. <laughs> but um, to be taught, because there's so many gatekeepers to get to certain people. Um, so the fact that a script ends up on their desk and they turn it down, I've chosen to see that as a win because I, just the fact that I can get there. Yeah. But um, yeah, like um, UTA and CAA, um, you, I engage with certain agents um, on projects. It's really tough now with, with travel and COVID. And also the, some of the projects are a bit smaller than what they necessarily want. Right. But I've had some, had some cool Skype calls with, with people who I've, I've liked their work and do a sneaky screen grab while I'm talking to them. <laughs> so I have it for the memory bank. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you're some, you're some good names in the mix. I won't do that until they're on the project. <laughs> <laughs> let me just finish this. Let me just finish this off quickly, uh, and then uh, and then just to say goodbye. I really appreciate you spending some time with me. And uh, are you are you quite an online kind of person? Can people find you anywhere? Or are you pretty private? Yeah, I mean, um, what's it? Uh, Instagram on the gram and Twitter. So what is my Twitter? Brett M. Innes and then Brett Michael Innes on Instagram. Um, yeah, I keep my Facebook a bit more private, even though that's a great way to network with the industry. So if you are trying to get in there, just it's amazing how often, like I'll watch a movie, especially one by a first time or second time director. I'll go to IMDb, look at who was involved, go and see if they're on Facebook, drop them a message if they are. And eight times out of 10, they respond and you start chatting, film. And, um, yeah, that's, I've used Facebook pretty well for, for that kind of networking. <laughs> cool. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Have a good weekend. Good to you too. Are we yeah. hanging up now? <laughs> and, and looking forward to the next one. <laughs> <laughs>